Welcome to LaGrave Avenue CRC's Sermon Podcast. In this sermon, we discuss whether or not a good deed reflects whether someone is rooted in goodness or not. We continue our summer sermon series, Reason to Believe, Can We Be Good Without God? by Reverend Peter Yonker. We continue our sermon series. This is the third sermon in the series on apologetics. It's called Reason to Believe, and what we're doing in this sermon series is responding to accusations and questions that are sometimes leveled against Christianity. And today's question is, can you be good without God? Do you need God to be moral? In the Bible passage I will be reading as part of the apologetic, as part of the answer to that question, is 1 John 4, verse 7 through 12. 1 John 4, verses 7 through 12. Let's listen to the word of the Lord. Dear friends, says John, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves God, everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God, because God is love. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only Son into the world that we might live through him. And this is love. Not that we love God, but that he sent his Son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another... God lives in us, and his love is made complete in us. This is the word of the Lord. Let's start by playing Name That Tune, shall we? Actually, I won't play uh, Name That Tune. I will play Name That Lyric, because I'd rather not sing for you, and you'd rather not hear me sing. Can you identify this song based on the lyrics that I will give to you? Here are the lyrics. Imagine there's no heaven. It's easy if you try. No hell below us, above us only sky. Imagine all the people living for today. Imagine there's no countries. It isn't hard to do. Nothing to kill or die for, and no religion, too. Imagine all the people living life in peace. You may say I'm a dreamer, but I'm not the only one. I hope someday you'll join us and the world will be as one. Well, that was pretty easy, right? I think most of you have probably had that answer a few lines into the song. That's uh, John Lennon's classic and much-loved Imagine. Written in 1971, it's a favorite of many, many people, and it's loved also by Christians, which is ironic because the song is really explicitly an anti-religious song. It's against Christianity and against all religions. Right? John Lennon is, is, is trying to imagine a world full of peace, and in the song he sees the obstacle to peace as religion. Imagine there's no heaven, imagine there's no 
there's no religion, and then imagine all the peoples living life in peace, right? That religion is the problem. If we didn't have it, life would be peaceful. Now, I'm not trying to get you to hate on John Lennon. I'm certainly not trying to get you to hate on the Beatles. I like the Beatles. I listen to their music. But I, I'm trying to just acknowledge what this very popular song that many of us hum to ourselves sometimes is really about. It's saying, if you really want a moral universe, if you really want people to be good, you've got to get rid of the idea of God. You've got to get rid of the idea of religion. John Lennon is not alone in that view, of course. Many people have it. In 2007, Christopher Hitchens wrote a very popular book called God is Not Great, How Religion Poisons Everything. I don't think I have to explain to you what the book is about. The title gives it away. The first 17 chapters of that book is Hitchens going through the history of the world and showing all the terrible things that people have done in the name of God for the sake of religion. And in the last three chapters, he lays out a secular worldview, an atheist worldview, and says, if we did this, if we lived this way, if we were all atheists and secular and we didn't practice religion, the world would be a better place. Unfortunately, over the years, Christians and other religious believers have given John Lennon and Christopher Hitchens lots of ammunition for their beliefs. Crusades were a disaster. The religious wars in the middle of the last millennium in Europe killed thousands and thousands and thousands of people. The Bible has been used to justify slavery and justify apartheid. And of course, even more recently, we're all used to the atrocities of 9-11 and, and the excesses of the Islamic State. People have done terrible things in the name of God for the sake of their religions. It's undeniable. But I would say that there is no question that bad religion causes trouble. There's no question that bad religion causes mayhem in this world. We said together in the first sermon of this series that God has put eternity in our hearts, right? We're fundamentally religious beings. We're fundamentally religious creatures which means we have this desire, this, this drive, which God has put in us, to make meaning, to be significant, to do things that matters. This is a really powerful drive in human beings. And when that religious drive gets pushed in the wrong direction, or when it focuses on the wrong view of God, when it becomes idolatrous, terrible things happen. People fly planes into buildings. People kill thousands, millions of Jews in the name of Jesus. Awful things, twisted things. But does that mean that people would be better off without religion and without God? Would people actually live their life in peace if we had no view of God and no religion? Can we be good without God? Does atheism provide a foundation for moral goodness? That's our question for today. Now, of course, on one level, the answer to that question is, of course, atheists can be good without God. We probably all know mostly unbelieving people who are really nice people, right? They're, they're good to their neighbors. They, they give to charity. They're decent citizens. 
So at that level, of course, atheists can be good without God. The deeper question and the central question is, can you sustain a moral life on the foundation of atheism? Can you grow the tree of goodness and the tree of morality and the tree of a good and loving society out of the soil of atheism? Yes, atheists do good things, but when they do good things, is that goodness growing out of the soil of their own beliefs? Is that fruit coming from their own garden? Or are they borrowing it from someone else's garden? Are they going to the farmer's market and picking it up from a different farmer? Well, let's think about that. If a completely secular, unbelieving person wanted to grow morality out of the soil of their own beliefs, what kind of soil would they be working with? Let's think about that soil. Last week, you may remember, when Ruth preached, she read a quote from a public atheist named Jennifer Hecht. Now, Jennifer Hecht is one of those atheists who goes out and speaking tours and tries to convince everyone that atheism is the right way to go. And in that quote, she kind of gives you an idea of what the soil of atheism looks like in the middle of the garden of atheism. Here's what she says. The universe is nothing but an accidental pile of stuff, jostling around with no rhyme or reason. And all life on earth is but a tiny, inconsequential speck of nothing. In a corner of space, it exists in the blink of an eye, never to be judged, noticed, or remembered. Kind of puts a smile on your face, doesn't it? Now, if that's the soil of your life, if that's the soil of your belief, if that's the soil that's in your garden, what kind of morality, what kind of moral tree will grow in that soil? Will a tree of goodness and sacrifice grow there? I don't think so. If you believe that the world is an accidental pile of stuff, if you believe that survival is our only real drive, if you believe that the story of the natural world is simply a story of unguided natural selection, no hand guiding it at all, just natural selection, just the strong species triumphing over the weak species, if that's the soil you're working with, how can goodness and morality grow in that soil? There's no nutrients for sacrifice, for love, for goodness. The only thing that grows in that soil is survival and self-interest. Now, we can be fortunate and we are thankful to say that many unbelievers and many atheists actually have a very strong moral sense, right? They care deeply about moral issues. They care about human rights. They'll fight for human rights. And they'll fight for the dignity of women, that women be treated as equal persons. And they'll fight for all, other, all sorts of other great social causes that, that we believe in too. And that, that's wonderful. But, but why should they fight for these things? Why should they have these values? Why should they care about these morals? Why is it better to treat women as full human beings instead of property based on their soil? And why should slavery be wrong? In fact, if I'm a strong tribe and I can conquer that tribe next to me and enslave them and take their stuff and enrich myself and make it more likely that my tribe survives and that my children grow up healthy, wouldn't, according again to the soil of atheism, wouldn't that be a good thing? 
Unbelievers do all sorts of good things. Unbelievers can be the kindest and nicest people. I don't mean to say anything other than that, but I do suggest that they are borrowing that fruit from other farmers. The idea of human rights, the idea of equal human dignity, it comes from the Bible. And it comes from the idea that comes at the very beginning of our book, that we are created in the image of God and beloved by him. Now, Christopher Hitchens, guy who wrote the book I mentioned at the beginning, gets very angry when you suggest that you can't grow morality out of the soil of atheism. I watched an interview he did in 2007 with someone from Stanford University, and the interviewer, to his credit, uh, put Hitchens on the spot and said, well, I mean, if you believe that there's no purpose in the world and, and that the world is just an accident, how, how can you um, hold up goodness? How can you hold up um, values in that, kind of, in that kind of world? And Hitchens was indignant. He said, that's insulting. We atheists are good people. We take care of our children. We don't murder. We don't steal. We're decent. We don't need God to be good because goodness is in our hearts. It's innate. We don't need God to tell us. We know inside ourselves what is right and what is wrong. So you hear what he's doing. He's trying to, instead of rooting his morality in the soil of his natural view of the world, he's trying to root it in some sort of innate desire in the heart that, that, that teaches us morality. But do we have such a thing? Sure, we think slavery is wrong today, but throughout history, there have been all sorts of cultures that thought slavery was just fine. It's just fine to own another human being. People in those cultures, their heart didn't teach them the true way. And the ancient Romans used to practice something called exposure. When they had a baby, the father, and I'm sorry to tell this story on Father's Day, the paterfamilias had absolute rights to decide whether that baby was worth keeping or not. So if the father didn't like the gender of the baby or didn't like that the baby was a little bit scrawny or maybe had some deformities, you could order that the baby be taken out into the forest and left there to die, exposed. Andy Stanley, in one of his books, quotes a letter from a Roman soldier to his wife. I'm still in Alexandria, honey. I beg and plead with you to take care of our little child, and as soon as we receive wages, I will send them to you. In the meantime, if, good fortune to you, you give birth, if it's a boy, let it live. If it's a girl, expose it. Hi, hon. Love you. Miss you. Oh, by the way, if you give birth to a girl, could you expose it for me? Say hi to the family. Our heart is not a reliable guide, not a reliable source for our moral life because, as the Bible says, it is corruptible. Our hearts can be made to tolerate terrible, terrible things. Hitchens is wrong. We can't sustain goodness just by looking inside ourselves. So that's the soil of atheism, that's the soil of secularism. Now we're coming to the soil of the gospel, the soil of God, the garden of God. And that's where we come to 1 John 4. 
1 John 4 tells us about the soil in the garden of God, the soil from which our ecology, the ecology of the Christian life springs. How does it describe that garden? What kind of soils in it? What kind of growth do we find in the garden of God? What kind of fruit grows in the garden? Love. Dear friends, let us love each other. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. Love all your neighbors as yourself. When a stranger strolls into the garden of God, that person should be overwhelmed by the scent of love. The aroma of Christ's love should fill the place. They should feel like they are in a place where love thrives and love is flourishing and love hangs heavy on all of the boughs. Where does this love come from that flourishes in this garden? What kind of soil does it grow in? Dear friends, let us love each other because love comes from God. God is the source of this love. We don't create it from within ourselves. It doesn't come from our hearts. It comes from God. We love because he first loved us. It is a gift. It is something that is given to us. We are planted in Christ. We plant our roots by his stream and his life, his spirit flows up into us and creates the fruit of the spirit of love and joy and peace and patience heavy on our boughs. It comes from God up into us. It is a gift. And when the love comes into us and when it hangs on our boughs, what kind of love is it? John tells us that too. This is love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us and gave his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. That's what the love in God's garden looks like. It looks like a man hanging on a cross, giving his life, giving his blood for difficult, complicated people like me and like you. This isn't just regular run-of-the-mill love or niceness or kindness. This is something deeper. This is a kind of love that the world has never seen. Often when we, we hear about secular people saying, you know, maybe if we just get rid of religion, everything will become peaceful. They always talk about certain values that will come into our life if, if we push religion to the side. And usually the values are our tolerance and broad-mindedness. Now, hear me correctly, I think that tolerance and broad-mindedness are wonderful things. I think they are necessary. They are a necessary part of our moral universe. If we want to be a morally robust people, we have to have tolerance and we have to have broad-mindedness. But on their own, they're nowhere near sufficient to create a robust moral life. Tolerance gives space to people to thrive, but it's essentially a passive virtue doesn't create anything. It doesn't start anything. It doesn't plant anything. It doesn't move anything. The love that flows to us from the death and resurrection of Jesus is not passive. It moves towards us and it is enormously fertile. It's enormously creative. Creative enough to make everything new. It moves to our sin and washes it clean. It moves towards shame and says, I still love you. It moves towards fear 
and says, I'm, I'm right here, right beside you. This love is not always gentle all the time. Sometimes this love pushes us. Sometimes this love confronts us. Sometimes it uproots. It uproots pride and replaces it with humility. It uproots greed and replaces it with generosity. It uproots lust and replaces it with streams of living water of faithfulness. It's not passive. And when the Spirit sows this love in you, when you are planted in Christ, and this is the love that is coming up through you, you become the kind of person that is inspired to move towards your neighbor. Not just let your neighbor be, but move towards your neighbor's need and your neighbor's want and seek his or her flourishing, even if it hurts you. I said earlier in the sermon that uh, the Romans used to practice exposure, right? Leaving unwanted children out to die. When the church came around, when the church started to grow, um, when the, the garden of God got planted in the middle of the Roman Empire and his love started to spring up in the middle of that place, uh, they were confronted by something new, a new kind of fruit through the church. Because Christians refused to expose their children and not only that, when they found exposed children, they would take them home and care for them as their own, sacrifice for them. And the rest of the Romans started to say, wow, what is this? What kind of love? Who, who motivates these people to behave this way? And it changed the whole society. By the middle of the fourth century, exposure was no longer allowed in Rome. Which makes me think. This is a series on apologetics, right? If you remember, apologetics is us defending our faith against accusations and questions. And, and I've tried to make a case, and hopefully I've made a good one, that even though atheists are, are great people, good atheist friends, that the soil of what they believe is not sufficient to sustain uh, good works over time. And I suppose you could take what I've said and you could go to your atheist neighbor, your secular friend, your unbelieving friend and say, see, let me show you why you're wrong. Bam, bam, bam. But maybe that story about exposure suggests a better way to do apologetics. Instead of trying to badger the rest of the world into faith, maybe you should simply let the fruits of love grow on your branches and see how that changes them. Let love be your apologetic. Who was the most powerful apologist, defender of the faith in the 20th century? Who do you think, if I were to ask you that question? Who was the greatest apologist of the 20th century? Now, many of you, I think your head probably goes towards C.S. Lewis. That's a good answer. But I think you could make a good case for Mother Teresa. Mother Teresa was a powerful defender of the faith, even though she never wrote a single learned tome. She wasn't a philosopher. She wasn't a theologian. All she did was go to Calcutta and quietly take care of completely broken people. She took lepers and dying beggars who that society had completely forgotten, who would die alone, and she treated them as if they were made in the image of God, as if Jesus lived in them, as if it were Jesus present to her in those people. And she took them, and she cared for them at the end of their life, and she washed their wounds, and so they died with dignity. And all the people of the world saw that, and they said, what is going on? 
Reporters started to come, kings and presidents, and wanted to talk with Mother Teresa because they all wanted to know, what kind of love is this? What motivates that tiny woman to do all these things? Who is behind this love? It's Jesus Christ our Lord. It's his love springing up from God's garden and into our limbs and producing his fruit. No one has ever seen God, says John. But when we love each other, when we love each other, his life is living in us and his love is made complete in us and the rest of the world sees. Thanks be to God. Amen. Let's pray. Lord God, send down our roots by your stream. Let your living water flow in us. Let your life come up into our branches so that we may bear your good fruit and so that we may glorify your name in the way we love each other and in the way we love the world. In Christ's name we pray it. Amen. Thank you for listening to LaGrave Avenue CRC's Sermon Podcast.